been three years ago, four years ago, I don't remember, was truck shopping, went up to Hamilton to look at a truck, and little Madeline went with us, and um, she just hung out with us all day, all day. You ever been truck shopping, vehicle shopping, and it's one of those all-day things? It's not a one-hour, two-hour thing. It's a all-day process. But anyway, I'm not, um, I'm not very demonstrative. I don't think that I have, but maybe a cup of tears that God wants me to shed my whole life. You know, I just, I don't cry. And any time that we're out and we're doing stuff with the kids, I always try to Somehow, I don't know if I'm doing this right or if I'm doing this wrong, but somehow say something to them that makes them take a snapshot of that day and I'll, in their mind. And I always say something like, Tucker, what are you going to remember from today? Or Madeline, what are you going to remember about today? And I want you to remember it for as long as, you know, until daddy's gone. What is it that you're going to remember? And I asked her there, and we were sitting at a Hardee's in Hamilton, Alabama, And my little girl made me cry. She looked at me and I said, Adeline, what are you going to remember about today? And she said, Daddy, I got to spend the whole day with you. And whenever he's seeing that, no place I'd rather be, no place I'd rather be than hearing your love. Just, I don't know. It just, uh, it stirs me. Father, as we come to you tonight, would you open our minds and open our hearts Lord, it is a joy to just come and sit down in your presence, God, and to be able to draw in close to you like a child does to their father. And I just uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go before me, God. And Lord, somehow take what's in my heart and in my mind and make my words match and prick the hearts of people where they need to be challenged tonight, God. Lord, we thank you for being a good father. Man, oh, I just, I can't thank you enough, God. But be with us now. Holy Spirit, speak to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. See some faces I don't know. Um, my name's Paul. I am the father of four small children, and I haven't slept in years. <laughs> so, <laughs> I am quite tired. I thank you for... Um, have you kept up with our pastor on Facebook on the adventure this summer? It blesses my heart that they're able to go hang out and be friends, be lovers, be like teenagers again. That blesses my heart that they're able to get away and do that. Um, I feel a little bit... Let, let me just tell you... For, I know when you're Pentecostal, you're not supposed to say this. Um, I listened to Brother Doug Blakeney's message from a couple weeks ago on a Sunday, be prepared, or being prepared to be prepared. I thought, God, why can't you ever say anything like that to me? Why can't you use me to say something? I mean, you got these guys that are given like four scored seven years ago type speeches, and I've got dribble running down my chin. I, I just don't know how. Man, that guy moves me when he talks. He, he just reaches out, and I'm thinking, wow. 
It's not ever been easy for me to come to you or to any congregation and say, I'm going to preach about, Brandon just talked about John 3.30 just a second ago. He must become greater, I must become less. And for me to make a whole message about that, it's just not in the cards for me. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work for me to be able to do that. I'm more geared toward, okay, we're going to read scriptures this point to this point. We're just going to dive in and that's kind of what we're going to do tonight. So you're not going to see the homiletics that Brother Gray talked about. Was it Gray? Uh, yeah, Ronald Gray, you know. Um, I'm down with the hermeneutics, but the homiletics, it's just not there tonight, okay? Um, so, but we are going to go to Philippians chapter 1. And, and, and I'm coming to you tonight out of Philippians chapter 1, knowing that we're just going to scratch six little verses here. And I don't know what will happen after that, but this is where I've been in my own personal um, devotion time. So I just kind of wanted to bring it to you. Um, Philippians chapter 1, if I can get there. Y'all all right? We got a lot of ground to cover. So anybody got to be out of here by 9 o'clock? We're going to read the first six verses, and that's, that's all that we're going to do tonight. Verse number one says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's wicked people, holy people, in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Um. I love Philippians because you get into Philippians and there's so many quotable notables that you hear out of Philippians. One of my absolute favorites is over in chapter 4. I love this scripture um, where it says, uh, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is uh, lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything be excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I love that scripture. It's one of my favorites. But in Philippians, you can find little nuggets like that everywhere. But I fear that sometimes we romanticize what we read. And we become familiar, too familiar with it, almost. Um, we, We read this here about the church at Philippi. And you think, wow, I mean, the year that this was written... 60 A.D., roughly, you know. I mean, there's about a five to seven-year span of time there that people argue about, but around, we'll just say 60 A.D. Um, for this church to receive an apostle, uh, an, an, a, a letter from the Apostle Paul, for that letter to be canonized in Holy Scripture, and for that letter to last and be passed down for 2,000 years, you would think that this is a pretty incredible group of people, that this is a really booming place. 
I mean, this is like, you would think this is mega church here, you know, for, for them to deserve a letter from the Apostle Paul, this had to be quite the place. But I think it's a fair estimate that whenever Paul writes this to all God's holy people in Philippi, that he's talking to what we would consider a pretty small group of believers. Like, not even in the gymnasium phase of church growth. But like home church phase. Maybe 60 people. You got to realize that whenever Paul got to Philippi, there was not even enough Jewish men. Paul's culture, how did Paul always evangelize? He went to the local synagogue and he stood up on the Sabbath day and he began to proclaim Christ. Paul couldn't do that because they did not have enough Jewish men in this community to even field a team. You had to have 10 Jewish men to be able to start a synagogue. Couldn't even do that, so what did Paul have to do? He had to go a mile outside of the city gate, outside of the city to even find a prayer meeting. Remember, he meets Lydia at the river? And that's where the revival starts in Philippi. Ten years later, you come through to where we're at around A.D. 60, and they had grown into a full-fledged church, but in our pragmatic-laced way of thinking in this Western culture, it wasn't the size or the scope or the type of church that we think of. This is not the type of church that you would go to and attend for a church growth seminar, which are everywhere right now. We probably wouldn't even consider them too successful by our standards today because, um, you know, we look at the outside. And, and what happens, I guess the glaring um, elephant in the room, if you will, is we judge things, but what if we're using the wrong system and wrong measuring stick to judge things with. Is it possible? Is it possible that we look at things and we use certain standards and reach certain conclusions, but what if we're using the whole wrong set of criteria to come to those conclusions? Jim Cimbala, pastors the great uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle. He talks about church growth these days, and he said, we like to base church growth on the ABCs. You know what the ABCs are? Attendance. Budgets and cash, attendance, buildings and cash. I don't ever see Jesus sitting around a fire with his disciples talking about we've got to secure a facility. True? I mean, we can go to the park underneath the pavilion and have revival. John the Baptist went out into the desert and he preached Jesus and it says that the whole city emptied to come out there. So attendance... Buildings and cash, scratch all that stuff that you're going to learn at these church growth seminars. But Paul's aim was to, his aim and his heartbeat was that the gospel be spread and he absolutely refused to be seduced by numbers or deceived by the appearances that a lot of people are deceived and uh, seduced by. Paul had one metric for the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. And it, it wasn't the number of people. What do we got in here? About 200 seats. It wasn't whether 75% of these seats are full. It wasn't anything like that. It was the holiness inside of the people of the church. 
That was the growth that Paul was looking for. He said, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers. That word holy in the Greek is hagios, which means, I love, I love the way that this lays out. I love the fifth definition the most. But to all God's special people. I like that. To all God's different people. You different? To all God's distinctive people. To all God's people, unlike those that prevail in the surrounding culture. And then this is my favorite one, but it may not be yours. But when you talk about holy, when you talk about hagios, to all God's people that are in the midst of, yet set apart. I like that. But you got to realize, how many of you know the story about Paul, where Paul came from, how he was Saul and all that? I imagine everybody here does. You may, you may not. It's no big deal if you don't. But Saul, he had a little bit more of a narrow focus about what holiness was than what Paul meets grace in Christ Jesus does. How many, I, don't, I don't know how many of you grew up in old-time Pentecostal church. I mean, I'm there. Uh, I remember whenever the women had to use three bottles of white rain to stack their hair up, and, and I've been there. Okay, and the higher that you can stack it, the more points you got with God. I've been there. That's what we used to call holiness. But Paul had this upbringing and this tutelage where his view of holiness was narrow. And, and for Paul, it was a lot like what we used to call holiness uh, whenever Paul was Saul. He had this view of holiness that was strict rigorous religious um, observance. But after Paul met Jesus, holiness changes. And, you know, that day that he got knocked off of his high horse, I'll move this here. Um, that day that he, he met Jesus, um, holiness took on a different meaning for Paul. Now, holiness, holiness uh, only means one thing, and here's, here's what it is. It's a, the holiness means holy love of God made known through the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a holiness message that will preach. That's a holiness message that will change a person's life. That's the type of holiness message that people will buy into. That's the type of holiness message that um, people are going to buy into and, and it's not putting more law on them. But whenever we talk about these externals of holiness, like what we used to hear whenever we were growing up, whenever I was growing up, it's just law, 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 more law. No grace, no, no Jesus really. It's just what can you do for God? That's all it was. And this whole thing is about what he did on our behalf whenever we had no power. We had no reason for him to even do any of that. Um, so back to Philippi. Um, what would we do? What would the church look like this day if we used 
the metrics of church growth and the metrics of church health that come from the New Testament instead of um, our own philosophies. According to this little church in Philippi, um, whenever the love of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus is in play, little is big. Little is big. Maxie Dunham, who is a professor at Asbury, uh, a great author, he, he likes to ask the question, he says, how deep is your desire for holiness? And I want you to just kind of think about that as I keep on talking. And then as a follow-up question to that, let me ask you, what is holding you back from pursuing that desire for holiness? So let's move on to verse 2. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. For any of you, for any of us that have been around church for any amount of time, that's going to sound like pretty cliche, boilerplate type of a message. Um, You know, Paul typically has a form that he goes through whenever he writes a letter And because of Paul's close relationship with the church at Philippi, he didn't feel that it was necessary to assert his apostolic authority. So he just says, we're servants. And he comes and he says, grace and peace to you. Now to me, whenever I hear grace and peace, I think of a bumper sticker slogan. But that's because we're 2,000 years from the time that he wrote it, and it's hard for me to get in my mind how he wrote it whenever he wrote it. But... This sounds somewhat cliche. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That really strikes me with no particular spiritual power. Kind of sounds like I said, like a bumper sticker. Or I think there might even sound like a uh, program on the radio. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace, you know. Anybody ever read Charlotte's Web? You know, it's talking about how Paul typically has a a form that he follows, and it reminds me of how Wilbur's asleep, and Charlotte says, salutations. He doesn't know where this voice comes from. He says, salu what? Salutations. And they go on through this little thing, please, please tell me where you are, and what are these salutations? And And Charlotte says, well, salutations are greetings. And when I say salutations, it's just my fancy way of saying hello or good morning. Um, But when Paul writes grace and peace to you from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not just a fancy way for Paul to say hello. You've got to get up inside of these words and see what he's saying. These are actually two powerful words in the New Testament. These are two nuclear warhead words here, and you, you just don't realize it. Remember the commercial for Raisin Bran, two scoops? These are two scoops here, okay? <laughs> these, these are powerful, powerful words here. I don't know how to explain it any more than this. Um, in the spirit world, these words carry a lot of weight. Grace, charis in the Greek, charis, which means <clears throat> unearned, undeserved, unmitigated favor of God. Peace are in the Greek, irene, 
which is a Greek way of saying shalom. Shalom. Paul's saying unearned, undeserved, unmitigated favor of God towards you. And then he turns around and he says, um, the unexplainable way of God is putting the world back together again in the midst of all the unsettled chaos that is still spewing out. So the world may be going like a volcano, but I'm saying to you, peace. Grace and peace. Paul's not well-wishing the church here. Paul, if you read what, what, what he writes here, Paul's not saying, I wish this to you. If you read from the vantage point that Paul's talking, he's actually speaking for God. He's speaking on behalf of God. He doesn't say, from us to you, grace and peace. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe we should look at the context of how Paul is writing whenever he, he writes this letter to them. Um, man, I've got so much to... Yeah, we're okay. Um, Paul's not sitting in a uh, pergola on a beach sipping on a fruit drink that has an umbrella in it whenever he writes this. Paul's not trying to write a poignant postcard message whenever he writes this. Theologians and scholars kind of argue about where the origin, where Paul was actually at the consensus is he was in jail, he was in prison. Most of them say that he was in a Roman prison whenever he pins this. For a man that's in a Roman prison, grace and peace do not seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, that is probably, at least in this Paul's mind, it would be the last thing on Paul's mind in the hurricane of life that had become Paul's life in his scenario. Paul is not getting his zen on. Paul has not reached a transcendental state where he can just separate himself. Paul speaks for God here. And I want you to, how can I say this? Um, we struggle, a lot of people in the, in the faith struggle with thinking of Christianity as just a different perspective among so many perspectives. And we live in a pluralistic world. If you ever listen to Ravi Zacharias, that's a word that you're going to hear him throw out there, pluralism. We live in a pluralistic society where there's so many different viewpoints, so many different vantage points, and people like to just shove Christianity into that corner with all the others. But the Christian faith is not a perspective. The Christian faith is not the power of positive thinking. The Christian faith is not helping you see the glass as half full instead of half empty. Um, Paul's not writing from a Christian perspective. He's writing from God's point of view. Um, Verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day 
until now. It sounds to me like they've supported him all along the way. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So the little church here in Philippi, who doesn't even have an address, I mean, they don't even have an address at this point. They still know their station. They know why they're there. Um, Remember how Philippi, the church at Philippi was birthed? Remember this story? Paul and, I don't know if it was Barnabas at that point, wanted to go one direction, and the Spirit wouldn't let them go. So that night in a dream, they saw a man, Paul saw a man saying, come to us, come help us. You remember this story? It's in Acts 10, 16, maybe Acts 16, I can't remember. Um, But the church there in Philippi was birthed in a vision. It's not a whole lot um, different than how a lot of churches are birthed, but you know, during the night, the man from Macedonia, he's begging him, says, come on over. Um, so what, what about this little place called Philippi? Philippi uh, was actually named by Philip II. And Philip II was the father, you may have heard of this guy, of Alexander the Great. Okay? Um, and Philippi had its own storied past because there were these things called gold and silver mines right there in town, right outside of town, that you can imagine any type of dictator or world power hungry leader wanted to conquer, and they wanted those. <clears throat> Go figure. Um, and it was a site of so many battles. And one of them that you've probably heard of, you just don't realize, um, one of the most significant military engagements in the whole Roman Empire, because in 42 B.C., there's this guy, another name that you've heard, Mark Antony. You ever heard of him? And Octavius, that's another name. Anybody ever heard of Shakespeare? Anybody ever read Shakespeare? They actually pushed back the forces of Brutus and Cassius, um, the assassin forces that killed Julius Caesar. All that happened here in Philippi. Philippi was the pride of the empire. Philippi was actually a, it was in the Greek world, but it was a Roman settlement inside of the Greek world. It's an interesting place. Um, And it, it, it took on the moniker of Little Rome and the empire had high hopes for this place. So that, that's how this little church got started. They, they, were, first, they, they were the first church in town. <laughs> they were the first church in Europe, actually, if you want me to be real honest with you. They were the first church in Europe. All of Europe. Philippi. Like I said a while ago, in one sense or another, it was birthed in a vision. I wish that we had some of the, the um, old-timers here tonight that have been around TFA for a long time. I mean, a long time. I'd like to know how that differs, really, from how this church was birthed. What led, was it Brother Spence that came to this church? Anybody know the history? I think it was Brother Spence. What led the believers to call a preacher, or however it was? How how did this church get birthed? Um, 
My wife is texting me like a monster over here. So like Philippi, TFA, was probably saw in a dream or in a vision. When I say that, I'm not talking about you actually see a man, but you knew that God wanted to do something there, and you saw it from a long ways off, but you welcomed it from the distance. TFA, the idea of a first assembly of God was out there. The idea of um, Skyland Baptist was out there. The idea of Inglewood Baptist and Valley View Baptist, it was, it was out there. And it was on the horizon. And we beckoned for the kingdom of God to come to Tuscaloosa. And whenever Paul wrote words to these people, words like, he who began a good work in you um, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. They didn't hear it the way that we hear a lot of scriptures now. Because we take, here's what we do. We read Philippians. Think, man, there's some good stuff in there that I can apply to me. And we read it for us. But whenever Paul wrote Philippians, when Paul wrote any of these, these books or these letters that we read, it was, all right, everybody, let me start reading. And it was addressed to the whole congregation. So whenever Paul writes, he who began a good work in you, he's not talking about you, okay? He's talking about y'all. Okay? Y'all. Think team here. Think team. They didn't hear it isolated as individuals hear isolated scriptures to help us out of our, where we're trying to get self-fulfilled. That's the only way that I know how to put that. It resonated with them like, okay, we're, we're in championship football country here. It resonated with them. Maybe I can get a little something from you if we talk about football. But it resonated with them. <clears throat> what years were the bad years for Alabama? Okay, think of it. You know that you're part of a championship club and a new coach comes in and says, come on team, come on. I know that God can do this. I know that you can do this. God's got your back. You can do it. God's going to do this through you. He who began a good work in you is going to see you through. He's talking to the team here, okay? So it resonated with him like a coach that beckons the team. Come on, buy into the dream. Buy into everything. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer whenever I say this, but I think in all honesty that, and please excuse that I really don't have a form with what I'm doing here tonight, but I think that we've kind of lost the sense of our local congregation as a team that's in battle. Does that make sense? I think that, um, you know, do we block for each other? Do we assist one another? Do we celebrate the victories that the other people, whenever they've made something, do? 
Or do we just become jealous because we didn't do it and they got the limelight? Have we, have we lost our sense of our towns and our cities and our, our counties um, as battlefields for darkness and light colliding with each other? Um, I don't know if I'm expressing this the way that I'm thinking about it, but I think that we've become somewhat jaded and, and in a way we've lost our urgency to see that no matter how big or small the congregation, that you're the tip of the spear. You're a deadly weapon in the hands of God. You're a deadly weapon. We're all part of that. If, if we could just grasp to what power resides in a congregation that comes together and fights battles, not with each other, but for, together, you understand? Song of Solomon, and I don't know that it's necessarily related to this, but Song of Solomon writes about an army, a terrible army with banners. I think I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but what if we saw the congregation in our churches that way again, where we are actually a movement pushing hell back in the community? C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters and if you're not familiar with the screw tape letters, what it is is it's a series of short letters. Um, it's kind of written from the vantage point of a senior demon talking to a junior demon. And there's one particular um, conversation that they have there, and I think it's, it's really a good, good thing to go along with what, what I'm talking about here. Um, this senior demon, though, he's instructing the junior demon about how to effectively tempt people. And uh, this is actually concerning the church. He, the senior demon, he says, one of our greatest allies at the present is the church itself. He said, do not misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her. So the, the demon's saying this. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity Terrible, here it is, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes the boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So what he just said is, look, if I'm the senior demon, you're the junior demon, we know what power these people possess and wield, but they don't have a clue. You ever seen the movie, I'm just thinking of, you know, you got Braveheart, that's a great war movie. You got, I don't, I don't know very many, I, I know, um, what's that, Tolkien movie? Um, thank you! I really don't do a whole lot of TV. Um, but in that movie, you see these armies lining up, and they fill up a whole valley, and they go out, and it's what an imposing formidable force you can see them and they're lined up spears together and you got these monsters and everything 
I wonder if that's what hell sees whenever he sees a prayer meeting come together and church people agree together and people come together in one accord, one mind. Realize that you are part of the offense. You're not called to be on defense. You're a part of the weapon that the Lord has decided to use here in Tuscaloosa. I want to shut up and get get done with this here. But I want you to think about it. You are a weapon in the hand. Are, are, you, are you stuck in the sheath? I mean, what, what good, are, are you willing to brandish yourself, if you will? If you're a weapon, are you willing to be brandished? <clears throat> or do you just want to stay decorated in your little sheath? You know, we've got um, a lot of leadership present here tonight. We've got Sister Nora. I mean, there's everybody here is a leader practically. But if you're in leadership... Did you answer the call of ministry in order to just become a religious service provider? So why do we do it? Church members, you're not in leadership, but did you just join a church um, to become a consumer of their products? No, probably not. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? If I can, I guess what I'm trying to say is whenever Paul, whenever you read Philippians, and Paul writes that, he's trying to build a team. That's what he's doing there. And I want you to think of yourself as the team that God chose here. And I'd like for us to just pray together, one-on-one with each other. What do we got? Tell you what, can we take 10 minutes to just pair up in little groups of two or three and pray for one another? Can we do that? And before it's all said and done, I would like to pray for you. I heard you talking about um, migraines. Are you, is that something you struggle with? All? Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Well, I thought that it was something you struggle with all the time. Okay. Well, um, if you will, come on up here. and, and um, I, I, There is something to people hearing people speak into their life. Speaking a good word. So what I would like for us to do is um, if you're comfortable, you know, especially the leadership, I'd like for you to just, you know, guys, if you want to pair up, you got some college guys here, or, well, 